This last uh, week, both Nigel and I kind of got sick and, um, at the same time. And uh, we were watching Shark Week as we laid on the bed, or on the, on the couch there, you know, kind of immobilized. I don't know if you've ever watched Shark Week. It's so, it's so much fun. It's, it's, sometimes, there's a, sometimes there's this really big story, and you're like, wow, this is so interesting. And then sometimes there's a really little story that they turn into, a, try to make into a big story. And you're like, oh, this is still kind of interesting. And sometimes there's no story that they still make into a big story by taking five minutes of footage that they just continually keep repeating in slow motion after every commercial break, right? And if you've ever watched Shark Week, that's how it goes. There's like these fantastic episodes, but then there's these... Um, predictable story arcs for all the rest of the stories where basically they all end the same way. That was a close one. That's how, that's how they all kind of go. But nevertheless, we keep watching it because sharks, uh, at least to us, they're captivating. Captivating in their movement. This constant movement. And James Smith is the professor of philosophy at Calvin College. He wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And he called us existential sharks. There's this constant movement of the heart, this constant moving toward where we think the feeding is, where we think the the soul food is. And you guys have heard me talk about that a lot before. And, And James Smith argues against Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore I am. And of course, Descartes' philosophical premise of man was that we were essentially thinking things. We were like are just flesh suits carrying around brains, and reason was king. And, and so James Smith and Augustine really argued against that, and it was that, no, we're not, um, uh, Augustine came first, obviously, but th- that, no, we're not thinking things. We're predominantly feeling things, loving things, hungering things. We're not just brains on sticks. And uh, Thomas Cramner was the, theologian, uh, he was the Archbishop of uh, Canterbury during the time of King Henry VIII, and he had a way of talking about the, the human heart and the human condition, and, and, uh, and uh, Cramner uh, said it this way, he said that the, that the heart chooses, I'm sorry, that the, that, the, that the heart loves, and then the will chooses, and the mind justifies, uh, but that, that the hierarchy is not the mind, but is the heart. And so really, ultimately, we're kind of like those sharks, this constant movement of being led around by our stomachs. And um, the three weeks leading up to Easter, Easter is three weeks away, and so between now and then, we're going to look at this condition of the heart that's constantly hungering and moving, and we're going to look at the temptations of Christ. Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness, and each week we're going to look at one of those temptations, and we're going to examine what the temptations of Christ teach us about our temptations and what's under them, and what's going on. But more importantly than just kind of having a, you know, an intellectual study on, on this and looking at temptation, we're going to look at God's grace for us, the good news of the gospel for us, as it relates to temptation and being a human and having a heart that's constantly moving like that shark and, and deviating and wandering. Our text for this morning, uh, I'm going to read two texts, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and then I'm going to read John 2. And uh, here's why. It's because uh, those te- in the first text we read, we're going to discover that Jesus is tempted to turn from his heavenly Father in three distinct ways. And in the second text that I read, 
we're going to see that the Apostle John illuminates how we are tempted to turn from our Heavenly Father in three distinct uh, ways. So I'm going to read these two texts now, and we're going to pray that they would speak to our hearts. Matthew chapter 4, and then 1 John 2. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took Jesus to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you. And it is also written, And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to the devil, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. But Jesus said to him, Be gone, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to Jesus. 1 John 2, 15-17 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, these things are not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever loves and does the will of the Father abides forever. This is God's word. So in that first text we read, the devil tempts Jesus to turn from his heavenly Father in three distinct ways. In the second text that I read, the Apostle John describes how we can be tempted to turn from the Father in three distinct ways. And so today we're going to look at the first way Christ was tempted. The first way Christ was tempted was turn these stones into bread. And we're also going to look at um, the first way the Apostle says we can be tempted, which is the desires of the flesh. Some of your translations may say the lust of the flesh. We'll look at that in a second. But here's today's sermon in a sentence. Not in a statement, actually. It's three sentences. <laughs> the son overcame temptation because he turned to his father perfectly. We fail in temptation because we turn to our Heavenly Father inconsistently. But the grace of God covers our failure in temptation completely. And is reforming us to resist temptation increasingly. That's what we're going to unpack as we look at uh, these two texts today. So we'll start at the beginning. The beginning, the devil comes to tempt Jesus. And Matthew chooses to use the word diabolos in the Greek. That's where you've heard uh, diablo in Spanish, right? Where you get the word devil. But what we need to understand about this is diabolos, when the original audience would read diabolos, they didn't think, aha, horns, pitchforks, really small pointy goatee, maniacal laugh. Okay. Because diabolos in the Greek was a word you would use when anybody did any sort of slandering. It's actually a legal term. So they would hear diabolos in court all the time when people were trying to um, create a division between uh, uh, two parties. That's what the diabolos did. It was all about division. So it's interesting that the, the scriptures use this term to describe the devil as the diabolos through the New Testament. Because what is the devil trying to do? He's trying to create disunity in the Trinity. It's pretty bold. How can I get God the Father and God the Son to be up to two different things? That's what this whole thing is about. 
disunity in the Trinity. So the text I pulled from John is, well, there, he's up to the same thing to, for us to create disunity between our Father God the same way uh, that he did with Jesus. So the devil's whole goal, of course, is that if he does create that disunity, how do you and I get to God? We can't. It's impossible. Because the only way to God is through Christ, and the only way through God is through his grace. Because the way that God defines good is perfection, and that is Christ. Of course, none of us can hold a candle to that, so this is what the devil's up to. So the Diabolus comes to, to create this disunity, to slander, to create a division. And then there's another word it, that it, I'm going to just kind of expound, because I think it gives us a big picture, uh, a beautiful picture of what's going on here. And it says he came to test Jesus. Now, any of you who fish know when you're going to buy a fish, a particular kind of fish, you go to get fishing line, and it'll say 10-pound test, 30-pound test, 60-pound test. And the whole idea is that um, it's under strain for a long time. And the idea is if you don't have the right amount of uh, test, the line snaps. And that is precisely uh, what this word uh, here in the Greek, uh, which is uh, piazzo, uh, I'm sorry, pirazo in the Greek, which means to bring to a breaking point. So when it says the devil comes to test Jesus, it's saying the diabolos, the slanderer, the one who's trying to cause division, comes to bring Jesus to the breaking point. And so, it, of course, he does this after 40 days, and it says that Jesus is hungry. Well, no kidding. Right? After 40 days, I remember I was on a fast a few years ago, and I was so weak and pathetic that I broke the fast because I was cleaning up after one of the kids when they were really little, and I unclipped their high chair, and there was some, there was a, a bread crust that had got saturated in milk, and I was carrying it to the garbage, and I looked down at that bread crust, and I was so hungry, not after 40 days, I think it was maybe four, four days, and I was like, we're doing this, and I ate it, and I broke the fast. I didn't tell anybody, because I was supposed to be a very spiritual person, uh, or I thought I was anyways. And uh, that's how weak I was. Weak and pathetic. You know you're weak and pathetic when something like that is, you know, like, looks good to me. But the point is that the, 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 the devil is coming to make Jesus fat, uh, snap. And it's humbling because when you and I think about times we snap, temptation is like, so again, go back to the fishing analogy. If you uh, fight with a, a fish long enough, it doesn't matter what the... What, what the test is, if it's a long enough fight, it can snap the line. And that's a picture of temptation. If it drags on long enough and we remain in that, being brought to the breaking point, it snaps. And when we think about times we've given into temptation in our life, it's, it's humbling because we look back on it and we say, I thought I was stronger than that, or I thought I was better than that, or I thought I was more mature than that, or I thought I was past that, or I thought that God had done a work in my heart and then never returned to that. Like, these are all the things that we kind of think and wrestle. So failure and temptation for all of us is humbling uh, because what we realize is under the right kind of test, under the right kind of pressure, over a long enough period of time, we snap like cobwebs. And... That's true of all of us. But here's the good news of the gospel in this for you, church. Jesus never snapped. And he gives his perfect record of never snapping to you. And then he unites you to himself. You and I are united to the one who never snapped. We are united to Christ. We're united to his great grace. So what's the significance of of all this? As he... When Jesus is te- being tempted to, to turn, turn, the, uh, turn the stones into bread, 
he's, he's saying, you know, stop. The, the temptation is essentially, stop looking to your father for strength. And use your own power in a, in a trivial way in self-gratification. You see how trivial this is? It's trivial because Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the one who holds the universe together by a word of his power. Jesus is preeminent. This is the way Colossians talks about him. And now, the God who spun the universe into motion is being tempted to use that power, and here he's on this redemptive mission by his grace to save us from our sin, and saying, you know, you could just turn that into a muffin. And all this pain would go away. See how trivial it is? This is what's going on here. Now, being tempted to turn a rock into a muffin to prove who he was, was this invitation to indulge in a pretty petty use of power. And if you think about it, essentially the devil points and he says, take and eat. Does that sound familiar to you? Because there was another time that the devil tempted somebody to take and eat. In Genesis 3, when they look at the fruit and the devil is tempting them to take it and eat it. And here we are again, the unoriginal (laughs) devil, up to the same thing, take and eat, and this pain can go away. What is underneath all of the temptation that you and I wrestle with and give into and sometimes snap it? It's, you know, all of this pain, tension, frustration, anger, anxiety, worry, would just go away if you would just take and eat this. If you would just like an, exist- like an existential shark moving and hungering, just feed on this and it'll all go away. This is what's underneath the temptation of what's going on. You see, Adam in the garden declared independence from God by turning away from the will of God to take and eat. Jesus, the second Adam, demonstrates perfect dependence on God and does not turn from the will of God, of God and he doesn't take and eat. So how does Christ's temptation really illuminate what's at the source of ours. Because at first glance, this doesn't seem like a text we can relate to. None of you have been at the bus stop after post-midterm hunger and looked down and thought, man, I'm so hungry. Um, I'm just going to turn this rock into a raspberry scone. At, at first glance, it's, this is just a text we seem kind of read and be like, I can't relate to this. Um, but the Apostle Paul, or, or the Apostle John in that second text we read, gives us some language, I think, that gets underneath what's going on. I'll, I'll remind you of it, and I'll read it again. He says, Do not love the world or the things of the world, for any, anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, this is what we're going to look at this morning, this desire of the flesh, or this lust of the flesh, um, uh, these are the things that are not of, the, uh, not of God, not of the Father. So first of all, when John says, don't love the world, he's not saying, and it doesn't mean this, you know, Christian faith means absence of pleasure and absence of enjoyment, and we're all aesthetics. Cardboard boxes to live in and paper bags to wear for everybody. Don't like nice things. That is not what this means um, at all, because uh, God created matter, so he likes it. God created beauty, so he likes it, which is why you like it. Um, the point is this loving of the world. In the Greek, the world is cosmos, and uh, it doesn't just mean uh, you know, stuff. It does mean stuff, but beyond that, it means the order of things. And the way that things are ordered. So when John says, don't love the world, what he's, he's getting beyond just the aesthetics to the heart, and he's saying, 
don't give your heart and love the order of things. And, and he's, he's saying, I'm not a part of your system. I'm throwing your system on the ground. This is what John is saying here. Don't love the world in that way. And so the reason why this is important is because this cosmos, this ordered system, um, consider the context that John was writing into. That this world he's writing into where it's an honor-shame culture, where you get all of your identity and all of your value and all of your sense of worth out of your ethnicity, out of your family, out of your social standing, out of your education, out of your wealth. I mean, that was everything. That was the way things were ordered. So you would have to, your heart would have to be constantly giving itself to attain and achieve those things so you could be okay and look in the mirror and be okay with yourself in the morning. And John is saying, don't love that because that's going to lead you into this, this, uh, these uh, desires or lusts of the flesh we'll talk about in a minute. And today in North America, uh, we're not just a communal culture where we're known by our family and family is everything. We're a very individual culture, which means all of those pressures are still here, only I would argue they're actually heightened. Because you can't, you, not only um, do you not ride your family's reputation and coattails in our culture necessarily, but you don't want to. I mean, the prevailing idea is like, you are a self-made person. And so it takes this whole idea of the, of the loving of the order, to, loving of the world and loving of the system, um, to this place where the Apostle Paul saying, or the Apostle John is saying, don't love that. When we hear this word uh, desires of the flesh or lust of the flesh in verse 16, we immediately think, we think lust of the flesh, desire of the flesh, we think sex. Okay, obviously this is 50 shades of temptation that he's talking about here. You know, it can mean that. I'm not going to reduce it to that. I mean, it certainly includes sexual sin, but it's, it's far broader. Um, the word desires, when he says the desires of the flesh, this is what's under the temptation. And the Greek is, is, uh, the Greek is epithemia. And the reason I'm giving you, you know, these words this morning isn't like, hey, let's have some, you know, Greek trivia. It's because when we get underneath the meanings, uh, we realize, okay, um, there's more maybe to the way that we kind of glaze over the text in English because we're used to it. But the epithemia is the desire or lust. And themia is, you know, the desire. And epi is like the epic, the over-the-top, this radical sense of inordinate focus. So it's like if you're not focused on doing something, your brain reverts to this thing. That's an epithemia. That's being driven, and then you're like, you're like driving your whole life by it. It's like the moment that you're done washing the dishes or, or, or doing your homework or you close the office door and you get in the car and you're, you have sp brain space to just like think now. The epithemia is like your, your life is driven by this thing. You're like that existential shark. So when the apostle John says, don't love the way the world is ordered and give yourself into this inordinate focus of your heart, whatever it is, pick your poison. Because that thing is going to lead you into this place of, of temptation. It's, and, and, uh, and ultimately, you're not going to flourish in God, but you're going to end up being a slave to this little mini-Messiah that's destined to let you down. This, this desire, this lust, is to have your mind and your heart on a loop. It's like you can't function or you can't be happy until you get it. You order your life around it. And... Um, you know, often uh, you you hear folks talk about when they come out of uh, when they come out and get freedom from alcohol, uh, they will say, you know, it was like I had to order I ordered my life around when the next drink would be. You often hear people talk about that. That's a fantastic picture for all of us because we're 
we're, we're not all alcoholics, but we're, we all have some sort of addiction, some sort of thing in our heart that God is always constantly by his grace drawing us out of and bringing peace to. And, uh, and so this is different for all of us and it's different for everybody. But the point is that uh, anything can be this when it becomes the ultimate thing. And so this first temptation of Jesus, hey, turn the bread into stone. Underneath it all, the devil is saying the same thing to you and I that he said to Christ, which is, put, sorry, turn the stone into bread. I said that backwards. Uh, Put an end to the rumbling need inside you by putting your needs before the world around you. That was the temptation. This rumbling need that doesn't want to go away, all you got to do is forget about why you're here, forget about your mission, forget about everybody else, and curve inward. And that'll make it better. That was Christ's temptation. That's my temptation. That's your temptation. At the core, it's the same. Put an end to the rumbling need inside us. And so Christ's mission and his call, of course, was to give himself. But the temptation was to prefer himself. Our mission and, of course, our call, as those who have been saved by grace, um, is to give of ourselves because we're free. I mean, that's precisely what the gospel of grace does. It liberates us. But the temptation, in whatever it is, uh, is a temptation to prefer ourselves, to curve back inward. So what does God's grace say about all this? What is the good news of the gospel in all of this? What does it say about our past failures? What does it say about our future temptations? Well, when we look at Jesus' answer, get some good insight here. Jesus answers the devil when he says, hey, turn the stone into bread. Jesus' answer is, he actually quotes uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what was happening was, the children of Israel were in the desert. And, and when, this, when Moses turned to them and said, man shall not live by bread alone, what was going on was they were grumbling and complaining. And uh, there's a reason. They were in the wilderness, and they were actually tempted to return to their life of slavery where they had food. And they were tempted to turn back to the life of slavery without God in their past because they were being brought to the breaking point by the pain of their present. They're in the wilderness, and the testing is happening, and the line is snapping. And as the pain of the present is, is, is prevalent and real, they're looking back at a time when they didn't even have God. And they're going, that seems better. Because if I could just alleviate this pain, I'll do it by whatever means necessary. And so Moses turns to them and says, man won't live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus quotes that. Why? Because in the wilderness, when the children of Israel were snapping and totally unfaithful, God was totally faithful. And in the midst of their unfaithfulness, God demonstrates perfect faithfulness and he provides bread. And now here's Jesus resisting temptation because he is perfectly faithful and he offers himself to us, to our hungering souls, as bread. In the ancient world, bread was life or death. Today, you go to the restaurant, it's like, hey, would you like some bread for the table? Yeah, I'll have some bread. No, I won't have some bread. Uh-huh. In the ancient world, bread was like, are you gonna are you gonna eat or are you not gonna eat? They weren't going to the store and you know eating meat every day like we do in the North, as North American moderns. Bread was life or death, and so and so uh, Jesus presents himself as life or, life or death as the bread. Jesus overcame his temptation not simply by quoting the word of God, 
How did Jesus overcome temptation? Well, he quoted the word. So if you just memorize the word and you quote it, you'll overcome temptation too. Not even close. Jesus did not overcome temptation by quoting the word of God. He overcame temptation because he was utterly dependent and rested in and trusted in his Father God. It was from his rest and dependence that he quoted. Was the powers not in the quoting? I've quoted all kinds of things, I don't know about you, in my life, to no avail. <laughs> because all I'm really doing is, I'm, I'm like, that's prayer. It's not really prayer. I'm just quoting in God's direction. I'm worrying in God's direction. I'm freaking out in God's direction. But I'm certainly not resting in God's direction. So I think there's a beautiful picture here of God's grace for us in our failure. Because though we struggle with temptation and fail in temptation, Christ was perfect at it. He gives you his perfect record and he's united himself to you, which means his grace is actually doing something in you. He's not just leaving us to say, hey, don't worry, you'll fail for forever. He's actually doing something powerful. God's grace covers your failure for every past temptation completely. And God's grace is reforming you now to resist future temptation increasingly. That's what grace does. It's what, his grace is forgiveness for you, and it's this glorious renewing power in you. It's what it is. It's both things. How does this work? How does he do it? How is he, what is he doing in you and I this morning as we're here gathered before him that's strengthening our resolve for temptation in the future. What is he doing and how is he doing it? I'm going to give you a picture of this that I think that explains, uh, might, might give you a visual for when we use these phrases like united to Christ and, uh, and the lordship of Christ. Here's a picture. Sometimes when a woman gets pregnant, she comes in the house and smells something, food, and goes... Whoa! Get that out of the house! She used to like it. Now she doesn't like it anymore. Sometimes when a woman gets pregnant, they start to crave different things. And they develop an appetite and an enjoyment for different things. Amazing things happen when women get pregnant. I mean, women being pregnant is amazing. But when women get pregnant, it's, it's incredible. Sometimes they can do that. And, they're very, and when they smell something or t taste something that they don't like or they don't want, it it's like it makes them nauseous. They're very strong about it. Well, well, you used to be okay with this before. Get it out. Get it out of the house. Right? It's not like, well, okay, maybe I'll try. It's away from me. Right? Some of you ladies know exa have experienced this in a... You're like, yeah, I'm just vicariously kind of telling a sideways story about it. But we know that this is true and real. And some of us as husbands have like lived in it and been like, this is amazing that you can't even smell this anymore. What happened? Something was growing inside her that rearranged and reoriented what she found enjoyable. Something changed her appetite. There was a life-altering shift of what she considered desirable. You and I have been saved by grace. And as we worship the God of grace, and pray to the God of grace, and meditate on the word of God and his, and his grace, as we do that, something grows inside us. And it is love for our God. And as the love for our God 
continually grows inside us. Just like that pregnant woman, the things that we had an appetite for begin to change. Some of that happens very rapidly, very strongly. Sometimes it's a struggle for a lifetime. Sometimes something makes you nauseous forever. And you're like, I may never get over this struggle. Some of you say, well, Paul, this is a really great sermon, but I still struggle with temptation. Good. Because the struggle means the Spirit is doing His work. And you're like, I don't want that anymore. If there was no struggle, you would be, you would be operating with indifference towards these things, and you'd be just devouring them and eating them and turning to these little mini-messiahs to bring peace to your soul. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's some sort of a substance that we go to or a relationship that we go to or a, some recreation act thing that we have to do that as an escape. You know, as North American moderns, we're escape artists. We love anesthetic. We don't want to feel stuff. And we have a million options to not feel things. We can alleviate that hunger by turning all kinds of things into bread. But the good news of the gospel is not only has Christ covered your sin and every failure, but he is now by the power of the Spirit inside you rearranging and reorienting what you love. God's grace not only covers you when you fall flat, but God's grace is growing in you and changing your appetite so that increasingly we will stand firm. Thomas Chalmers was a theologian in the late 1700s and he talked about the heart and the desires of the heart this way. He, he preached a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, and I'm going to read an excerpt. He says, It is seldom that any of our tastes are made to disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. The heart must have something to cling to, and never, by its own voluntary consent, will it denude itself of all of its attachments. Therefore, the superior affection for God through the free gospel of grace in Christ is necessary to displace worldly affections. This is the expulsive power of the new affection. And so the devil tempted Jesus, and he said, Take and eat. But Jesus did not take and eat. And in a shocking, redemptive turn of events, Jesus called you and I to remember his grace for our sin at the Lord's table, where he invites us to take and eat. And taking and eating were the actions that brought mankind's damnation but now taking and eating are the actions that remind us of our redemption. And as we take and as we eat this morning, church, may the God of grace continually reorder our appetites and the hunger in our souls. Amen.